Uh, there was this story that came, this is one of my favorite things that I saw uh, recently. It's from a little while ago now. You can see the stories from February 28, 2019. It's from the MIT Technology Review. Uh, it's a print magazine as well as an online uh, magazine. Uh, and the article you can probably see there is called The Hipster Effect, Why Anti-Conformists Always End Up Looking the Same. Um, I didn't read this whole article. Uh, it was a, a, a scientific study, as MIT is wont to do. Uh, but the gist of it was, I, I mean, if you're not familiar with this term hipster, uh, sometimes it can be used as a pejorative. Sometimes it can be used as a, a badge of honor for those that count themselves in that school. But, but one of the, the key things seems to be kind of a, a, a real fierce insistency on nonconformism, you know. They're hipsters because they're, they, they like things that nobody else likes, you know. They, they like the stuff uh, long before anybody else knew what it was. You know, it's, it's become sort of a joke, right? And so the article was, was you know, just looking at this, that, and not just for hipsters, in any group that sort of considers themselves nonconformist, that they sort of end up looking the same, acting the same. But next slide, just a little bit lower on the page. And I know this is sort of hard to see in here because they took a photograph and added some filters to it, but, but they used this photograph of maybe a quintessential hipster, right? Have you seen this guy walking around? They got a call in their offices from this guy and said, um, I'm upset that you've used my photograph without my permission. You can't do that. Take it down or I'm going to sue you. Now, the editors at the magazine were really confused. They thought, you know, we're really good about doing our, our due diligence. And, and so they, they looked into the, the article and the research and found that they had actually purchased this photograph from Getty Images. If you don't know, Getty Images is, is one of many uh, clearinghouses for stock photography. And if you want to use some photography uh, on a web page or in an article or, or virtually with anything, you can purchase these images. You're sort of purchasing a license for use of the image from Getty. And the people who put the article together said, well, that's strange. We bought this picture from Getty. So next they called Getty. And they said, hey, we bought this photograph from you. And now we're being sued by the person who's in the photograph who said that we don't have permission and they didn't give their permission for their photograph to be used like this. And Getty images scratched their heads and said, well, hang on a minute. And they went and looked, and they found the name of the model who had taken the photograph and the signed waiver and everything, and they said, wait a minute. The person who has contacted you is not the model. It's not the name of the model. As it turns out, it wasn't the guy who had contacted the magazine. It wasn't his picture. I don't think I need to explain to you the irony <laughs> of an article talking about how nonconformists end up looking like themselves, prompting a call from somebody swearing that his photograph was in the article and it wasn't even him. <laughs> I love this. I mean, it made me laugh. But the reality is, a lot of us uh, do this. We can be done with that now. A lot of us, I think, in our... Our lives are, uh, are walking around. Uh, we do this where we, we sort of make ourselves the center of the picture, you know? I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of us are, are maybe sort of a little self-centered, aren't we? 
This isn't unique to any specific group of, of individuals or, I mean, we're, we all have a little bit of this in us where we tend rightly or wrongly and oftentimes wrongly to paint ourselves into every picture. How many times have you, have you heard about some tragedy that has struck someone? And then there are all sorts of people that come around and say, well, let me tell you about my connection to that tragedy. <laughs> there might be six degrees of separation, but I really want you to know this tragedy has affected me in kind of a special way because, right, we love putting ourselves in the center of the picture, which is why I love one of the elements of Christmas, I think, that is very instructive to us. We just sang the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. In this season, I've been just reflecting on some of my favorite songs. I think some of our favorite songs, and there are so many of them, right? So many of these carols. And so to do a, a series on all of them, uh, we would have had to start this in June. And maybe some of you would have been okay with that. I don't, maybe we'll do that some year. We'll, we'll do Christmas all year long. But yeah, yeah right? <laughs> I do often feel there's too little time to have Christmas music, you know? I've said that a lot. Ah, nonetheless, a little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. I love this picture this very quiet scene. I, I debated whether or not uh, this week to use uh, Silent Night, which we also sang this morning. But these, these themes of just the quietness of Christmas, and we've discussed this before, but I think this song, this carol maybe touches on it a little bit more closely. This idea that this sleepy little town while you notice, you know, the, the lyric says that everybody is asleep. The town's basically asleep. They have no idea what's going on right there in their midst. And we looked at last week, as we've talked about uh, a couple weeks ago, that Christmas calls us to anticipation. And then last week, that Christmas calls us to celebration. And not just celebration, but a worshipful celebration. Not just celebrating for celebration's sake, but, but turning this celebration into a worship of God and of Jesus, the King of Kings. But one of the things we looked at last week was this announcement to a group of shepherds, right? And how strange that is. There's this beautiful, incredible, I don't want to use the term bombastic incorrectly, but really extravagant, you know, celebration. A host from the heavenlies, singing this song and praising God in the skies. And who do they choose to show that to? This bunch of scraggly shepherds, you know? I've joked many times, and I'm, I'm taking some liberty here, you know, you understand, I'm speculating somewhat. But these guys come wandering in with a bunch of sticks and twigs and straw stuck in their beard, you know? <laughs> it's just their rough and tumble. They live outdoors. This is who they are, you know? And that this is who this grand, magnificent announcement is made to. And you see this picture of this little town, this sleepy town. The, the idea from this, uh, for this uh, carol 
comes from the book of Micah. If you want to turn to the book of Micah, feel free to use your table of contents if you need to. It's okay. Micah can be one of the tougher ones to find. One of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. Micah chapter 5. Micah 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. We've been looking at this the the past few weeks that this idea of Messiah, this idea of someone who was coming to rescue, to deliver, to save, goes way back. I mean, one can clearly make the argument that it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, at the time of the fall. This, what is often referred to in fancy hoity-toity language, is the proto-evangelium, the first mention of the good news, the evangel that one was going to come. And then over the the decades and over the centuries to follow, the millennia even to follow, prophets come and they, they talk about this coming Messiah. But Micah does something really interesting. He says the coming of the Messiah is gonna come to this little place, this Bethlehem. You, Bethlehem, you're not even counted, you know, you're so unimportant, right? I mean, if you and I were to choose, well, I don't, I don't want to drag you into this. If I was to choose the place where the Messiah would make his grand entrance into our creation, where would it be? Where would it be? I, I don't think it would be Bethlehem, right? It would be, you know, if you were a Jewish person, the, the clear place would be Jerusalem, wouldn't it? Maybe right at the temple, you know, there'd be a lot of pomp and circumstance and trumpets and and there would be this big parade with ticker tape, you know, and it, it would happen in the middle of the day for one when everybody was awake and in a really big important place. And for us, because, you know, again, we're somewhat us centric, you know, maybe we wouldn't be thinking Jewishly as much. So we might choose a, a large city like New York, you know, that just has a great population density or I don't know. But it probably wouldn't be Bethlehem. That would be like something really big and amazing happening in Washington State, maybe even for the whole Pacific Northwest, you know, and deciding that it would happen in Rockford, Washington. (laughs) No disrespect meant to Rockford. (laughs) But I do tease Rockford a little. You know, Rockford is one of those places, if you drive out to Rockford and blink, you've missed it, you know, right? That's a little bit what it's like. And God, in his wisdom and in his sovereignty, chooses this little town. And Micah just sort of sneaks this in. And again, you know, we understand that Micah wasn't writing what Micah wanted to write. We're told in in Scripture that all of this was given to these prophets, to these voices by God himself. God was speaking through him. 
Micah may not have, have understood why. I'm sure Micah didn't understand why. But we get this little nugget about the place, the specific place. And in part, it works out as, as a sign, as so many of these prophecies do. There were all of these signs, see. And when Jesus was interacting with people, when Jesus was interacting with the nation Israel, much of what he said was, listen, you've seen the signs of who I am. All of those signs point to me. They're all there. But there's something so interesting and instructive here that is more than just a sign. I don't think that God simply said, let me put it in this really small backwoods place because then it'll be kind of a, you know, we looked at this last week when we talk about Jesus being born in a manger and, and the shepherds are told by the angels, this is going to be a sign to you because you're going to find this baby in this little place called Bethlehem and he's going to be laying in a, an animal's feeding trough. That's unusual, right? And just Bethlehem as a place, it's kind of unusual. That's what Micah is expressing. It's weird. It's unexpected. But there's something really interesting in this choice, too. If you want to turn to Luke. We read over this portion in Luke really quickly last week, the portion immediately preceding this announcement to the shepherds. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1 again. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Let's stop. <laughs> you remember where Joseph and Mary were from, maybe. Nazareth, right? Which is way up north. If you look at a map, and I know most of your Bibles have maps in them, but if you look at a map, you're, you'll see sort of featured heavily in this land of Israel, the Sea of Galilee, kind of looks like a circle, and then the Jordan River, and then a, a, an oval for the Dead Sea down below. And they sort of demarcate this, this land, and this place of Nazareth, it's way up north in Galilee. It's in that region of Galilee, up in the north. But the prophet said that Jesus, who was to be born to Mary, was going to be born in Bethlehem. Now, there is absolutely no indication whatsoever that Mary and or Joseph said, wait a minute, we're supposed to give birth in Bethlehem. We better go to Bethlehem. No. What happened was, randomly, <laughs> the Caesar said, let's have a census. And in order to do that census, let's have everybody go back to sort of their hometown, the, the, their original tribal allotment, the place of their family. Let's do that. Quite an accident, isn't it? I mean, just as an aside here, isn't God something else? All of these little details that have to happen. Did Caesar know that he was being used by God? I highly doubt it. I highly, highly doubt it. Caesar, filled with, with pride, probably said, let's have a census. 
let's basically enumerate my empire. Let's count. I want to see how powerful I am. I, I mean, I suspect that's what's going on. And yet here you have Joseph and Mary saying, well, I guess we're going to Bethlehem. And it wasn't a journey they probably particularly wanted to make. Some of you who have been pregnant, you want to make a long journey on a donkey while you're pregnant? Probably not. If you do, I mean, if you had that thought, if you were a person who has given birth and you thought, yeah, I would like that, you can see me afterward and set me straight. (laughs) But my strong suspicion is that nobody would have that thought. I don't think Mary would have either. But here they are on their way to Bethlehem. And so verse 4 says, Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, so that he could be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. Everything about this is about as quiet and understated as it could possibly be. It's more than just that. It's incredibly humble. It's incredibly uh, minimalist. It even represents kind of a hardship. Again, to make the trip in the first place, it's hard. It's not ideal. And then you get to where you're going. Okay, we're here. Let's go find a a Motel 6 or something affordable and let's check in. Sorry, we're booked. Sorry, we're booked. Sorry, we're full. Now, now. I suggested last week it's possible there, there weren't a whole lot of inns. Again, keep in mind, Bethlehem's a small place. So it's not as if they could open the yellow pages and find 27 different inns to go check. I mean, it, it may have taken them one visit to one inn even. I, I don't know. But to find out, yeah, there's no room here. We're booked. You know why? Because all sorts of people were doing the same thing that Joseph and Mary were doing. And maybe they got there faster because they weren't traveling with a pregnant wife. And here they get there and they say, we need a room. And the innkeeper says, sorry, we don't have a room. But I'll tell you what I can do. I, can, I, I mean, I can see you're in a jam here. Why don't you stay out in the stables? I, I mean, <laughs> I know it's not much, but it's better than having nothing. And so here they are. And now maybe they're hoping, well, we'll just get through this, we'll get through this census, and then get ourselves back to Nazareth, you know, to home. But no, Mary gives birth. You know, we're not told anything about her due date, whether this was premature or overdue, or we don't know. But now she gives birth while they're in Bethlehem, this little backwoods town, in a barnyard. And they look around, and this, this baby is born, And keep in mind, Mary and Joseph have been told who this baby is. But that doesn't change the situation. Well, what do we do? Well, I guess we'll 
wrap him in some raggedy cloths to, to keep him warm. And here's a manger. Here's this feeding trough, which is marginally better than the ground, you know, I guess. So we'll put him here. There's our crib. <laughs> and this is the scenario into which the king of kings is born. Which I think is really curious, isn't it? It's really unexpected. It's really unusual. If you turn back to Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Stop right there. Again, these wise men come. This is sometime after the birth. You know, sometimes on Christmas cards and in nativity scenes, we've got the wise men there at the birth, right? Well, it's sometime after the birth. I'm sorry to shatter your your quaint pictures of what, <laughs> that's okay, mine were shattered years ago, so, you know, you just joined me. But this is sometime later. We're not sure exactly how long after. Long enough where it seems like when Jesus is born, we're going to see they saw a star, and then they started traveling. And again, really long trip, no airplanes. So it's a long journey, right? And these wise men come, and we know that there were three of them, don't we? No, we really don't know that. We know there were three gifts. The Bible, if you're carefully reading, doesn't enumerate the wise men, just the gifts. But some greater than one number of wise men came and made this journey. And they said, verse 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, going to Micah, of course, well, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and here's this quotation. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so Herod finds out and he instructs. We know the rest of this story. He tells these wise men, oh, he's in Bethlehem. And as it turns out, I would love to go worship him too. So when you find him, will you please report to me where he is? And the wise men are told in a vision, don't listen to that scoundrel. Don't do that. But they go and they find and they worship. They worship. See, this is why they're here, is to worship the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Kings, who has come into this world. And they find him in Bethlehem still. Right? The humility of this picture the humility of this whole situation is staggering, 
Because if there is anyone who deserves fanfare, who deserves a big ruckus to be made, a party in the ticker tape parade, it's God, is it not? It's God himself. If there is anybody who warrants a big grand celebration, it is this Messiah. It's the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Savior of the whole world. And God chooses not to do that. He chooses to make a relatively grand announcement, but to a bunch of shepherds. And other than that, it's really, really quiet. There's no scene where they come into Bethlehem and the innkeeper says, I'm sorry, I don't have room for you. And suddenly there appeared an angel from God and the, and the glory of God surrounded them. And the angel said, you got to be kidding me, there's no room. Do you know who this is? It doesn't happen. Instead, just very quietly, maybe in a way that made them somewhat ashamed even, the innkeeper said, you can use the barn the stable. I don't know what to tell you. It's all I've got. And here they find themselves in this circumstance that they didn't ask for and that just seems so at odds with what is happening. Which is why I love that carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. It's like this little, sleepy, unimportant town and while everyone was sleeping, do you know what was going on? Do you know what was happening? But the humility of this, the soft-spoken nature of this. If you want to turn to the book of Philippians, or if you don't want to turn there, I'm going to read it to you anyway, so it's okay. Philippians chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, I'm starting in verse 1, I'm sorry. Any participation in the Spirit any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And then this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, and I want to be careful with that. It doesn't mean that he appeared like God. The original Greek is very clear. His very form was God. Don't misunderstand that. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
he humbled himself. I love that picture of, of not feeling like his deity was something that he needed to, to cling on to, to grasp onto. Now here again, from a theological standpoint, I want to be careful about the way that we talk about this. Because I, I think this idea of emptying can be uh, confusing if we misappropriate it. And I don't believe that at any point that Jesus ceased being God. And yet he didn't consider that something that he needed to grasp onto. He's willing to let go. Theologians have often used the term, he let go of the prerogative to exercise his deity, his godness. He let it go. Therefore, let this mind be in you. Christmas calls us to anticipation. Christmas calls us to celebration. And Christmas calls us to humility. Because the point that the Apostle Paul is making in Philippians is really, I'm going to take great liberties and paraphrase here again, but is to say there is nobody as deserving as Jesus Christ, and he humbled himself. So you, therefore, do the same. As we here at, at Berean, as part of our strong mission, our desire is to become fully devoted followers of Jesus. This is part of that equation. That as Jesus... And there is none higher than, as he humbled himself, so we, many clicks below in terms of importance, you know, should have the same mind and humble ourselves and have a mind of humility. Let this same mind be in you that was in Jesus Christ. And that isn't something that simply started for Jesus Christ at the beginning of his, his three-year ministry on earth. It started way back when he, in his birth, when he was born. And I believe that God is unbounded by time, not constricted by that. And so I hate to use the term moments or minute or day or anything like that. But at some point, you know, in eternity past, there was this moment where God himself said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to let go of that prerogative. I'm going to let go of my rights and I'm going to humble myself to the point of being born in an animal stable, in somebody's feed trough. That's how I'm going to enter this world and save it and rescue it. And the Bible says simply, let this same mind be in you. You're no doubt familiar with the term rat race. Or if you're not, the rat race is just sort of a, a colloquialism to mean you got to get out there and get yours. You know, you got to beat the people around you. You got to stand out. And, you know, professionally, uh, there's certainly a, a place for that, perhaps. But, you know, we get so caught up in that. It's standing out. You see it so, so vividly. And, in social media and social media usage, you know, so many people are ruled by how many friends they have and how many likes they have and how many followers they have. It's this race, you know, to stand out, to be better than. If you're not getting enough likes or, or visits or whatever, 
You, you got to do something kind of wild, you know, so you can stand out. Be nonconformist, you know. You know, stand out from the crowd. It's just baked into us. And yet the Bible says, look at Jesus. Look at this entry. Look how quiet it was. Look how humble it was. And there is no one who deserves more of a fanfare than Jesus Christ. There has never been a moment in our world's history that more called for a big, grand celebration than this moment. And yet it's so quiet and simple and humble. There it is. <laughs> this is our God who came to rescue who came to save his people from their sins, who the prophets have been pointing to and talking about for millennia now. And he just comes so humbly, so devoid of any sort of spotlight. And you and I are told this same mind ought to be in us. I know Philippians 2 isn't exactly a Christmas passage per se. But it really does point back to this Christmas narrative. Again, everything about Jesus' earthly life and ministry was all about humility. Remember when he tells some of his disciples, you want to follow me? I got to tell you, you're, you're going to have a pillow to lay on. You won't have a thing. A rock will be your pillow, you know. That's all you're going to have to lay your head on. It's a humble life. You want to follow me? Let's go. <laughs> he doesn't try to offer them cloying uh, offers of great cookies or luxury digs. He just says, hey, this is the way it is. So please do follow me. Just know what the cost is going to be. This same mind ought to be in you and I. Christmas calls us to humility. We have a beautiful picture in this birth story. Just the fact that there's so little about it in the Gospels. And what there is is just so quiet and played down and, and humiliating. But we are told, and we should see this in this Christmas story, to have the same mind in us as was in Jesus. I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't know if you're caught up in, in your own version of a rat race, where you're really trying to make sure you stand out, where you're really trying to make sure that people notice you, you know. I mean, sometimes we've got people that, that if the conversation isn't about them, they sort of don't want to be part of it anymore even, you know. But even if it's not that extreme for you, I think we all, you know, it's easy to find other people for, the, the, you know, that you really think need to hear this message this morning. 
But you need to hear this message this morning. I need to hear this message this morning. We all need to be reminded of the humility of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which is right from the very outset on display in his entry into this world. And for that to be a model for us. For that to be the pattern for what our mind looks like, for what our heart looks like. That we would be humble the way Jesus was humble. Our Father God, we again praise your name. There is just no end to the praise that you deserve, to the praise that we can offer you. No matter how much we pour out, God, it won't be enough. And yet, to see here again in 2022, this picture, this story, we're all so familiar with it, God, but to be reminded of what an incredibly humble, frankly, it doesn't seem fair that people didn't know what was going on right around them, right in their midst. And yet here it was. Very humble. Soft. Quiet. Almost unnoticed by so many. And then we're reminded that the Apostle Paul wrote, this same mind ought to be in us. Just like Jesus, who even though he was God, decided to let that go and to, to enter human form with all of its weakness, with all of its disadvantage, with everything except for the sin nature, and to humble himself, even to the point of dying on a cross, that this is the mind we are to have as his followers. And God, just as in previous weeks, we don't want to simply be happy about Christmas. We want to be worshipful about Christmas. We don't want to simply have a, a sense of somebody else's anticipation that was fulfilled, but we want to have our own anticipation that will still be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we don't want to just reflect this morning on how sweet it was. This beautiful, little, quiet, humble scene that's so pretty. God, we want to see that we are called to humility by this Christmas story. And by the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And God, in this season, I continue to pray fervently, God, for those that may not yet be followers of Jesus Christ, who may not know your son personally, have that relationship and have accepted that free gift of salvation that you've given to everybody through Jesus Christ solely because of him and what he has done. That this would be the season, that today would be the day that they would trust this Jesus. King and creator of everything who chose to let that go and to be humbled to be one of us out of love and out of a desire that we would be saved. 
If that's you this morning, you've not yet received that. There's nothing stopping you. You don't have to go to a class first. You don't have to learn a bunch of stuff first. You don't have to change your behavior first. All you need to do is come to God humbly and say, I recognize Jesus saved me and I just want to accept that right now. And make him my Lord, make him my Savior and follow him. And I want to give you my life right now. And that's it. And that's it. And you will start this brilliant journey of becoming a follower of his. God, thank you for this time of year. Thank you for the celebration. Thank you most of all for the model that we see in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And may we have this same mind today and throughout our lives, God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.